prophet Nahum, between Micah and I had a professor that called it Habakkuk. Uh, Habakkuk and a smile is what he always said. So. Uh, it's interesting, I, I, I was going to preach from the minors in kind of in chronological order, but uh, as you kind of work your way through that, there a lot of them were prophesying during the same period and there's some overlap there. Uh, Nahum was the, the, the logical book to follow Jonah with uh, because it is dealing with the Ninevites as well. In fact, uh, Nahum's prophecy in regards to Nineveh uh, ultimately leads to their destruction here. Uh, it's prophesying that destruction. Uh, I thought to myself as I was studying in Nahum, uh, this, was, this was the message Jonah wanted to preach. And this is what Jonah wanted to say. Uh, and just as if the, God, if the Lord was displaying he's a kind and gracious and compassionate God, and Jonah knew that, but Jonah resented the fact that God was actually going to relent in his, uh, the judgment he had declared upon Nineveh, 40 days he gave them. And so when we get to, we get to the book of Nahum, we're looking at anywhere between 100 and 150 years later. And one of the salient points that I thought ought to be touched on is the fact that even in regards to the repentance in Jonah's day, which seemed to be earnest uh, from, from the king down to every beast was covered in sackcloth and sitting in ashes. It seemed to be a, an authentic fear of God that motivated a turning away from their wickedness. But within a generation or two, uh, they are now exceeding, uh, in some cases, uh, scholars believe exceeding now the wickedness in Nahum's time that they were even had achieved in Jonah's time. Uh, they had definitely expanded their kingdom. Uh, the northern kingdom obviously had fallen under Assyrian uh, domination. Uh, even some, I understand, of the cities in Judah had come under the domination as well, under the, uh, had been overthrown by the Assyrians. They were the, they were the superpower on the earth in that day. And as I've said before, the Babylonians had a kind of a different style uh, of domination, but the Assyrians were ruthless. Uh, they meant to dominate by fear alone. They were so ruthless and violent and wicked that just the sheer terror of an Assyrian invasion would cause cities to fall altogether and to beg for mercy, as it were, from the Assyrians. And many of those, they would carry away captives and enslave in their own, in their own land. And so Syria or Assyria has come under now, after all these years, this final indictment from God. This time, in fact, he says in this book, there's, there's no relief from you. Your, your wound this time is incurable. I remember years ago watching Pollyanna. Anybody seen that or am I marking my age now? Um, Pollyanna. They had a Presbyterian preacher that preached the wrath of God so hard the chandelier shook when he would, death cometh quickly. And the little girl was all trembling. And when they got home, they called it Sour Stomach Sunday. And they were talking about how the preacher was always preaching on the wrath of God. And we've come a long ways from that day because now you hear very little about the wrath of God. And and even when we hear that, even Christians that I speak to sometimes seem to have trouble reconciling the loving God of the New Testament and the wrathful God of the Old Testament. They act as though they're two different gods almost, as if those two things can't be reconciled. They are not consistent to be manifested in the same God. And that's a real theological problem if you feel that way. And it's rooted in a not understanding the nature of God himself. Just as much as the love of God is rooted in his nature, so also is the wrath and the justice of God as well. And that's really what Nahum introduces us to. Jonah wanted the wrath of God and the justice of God to be manifested and that God would glorify his name and power and, and avenge his people on the Ninevites. And God said, not yet, Jonah. Go preach this simple message and God granted repentance in that sense, in the Romans, in the Romans chapter 2 sense. 
His kindness towards them led them to repentance. And there was a generation that perhaps uh, backed away from their wickedness. In fact, I was doing some study and archaeologically along those timelines, there was a window there where Assyria wasn't aggressive. There were no battle campaigns and no remarking of the king overthrew this nation or this nation. There was a window there where there was no, there was no conquest happening in Assyria. But then it picks up again. And it's been exceeding now until the time of Nahum. So the opportunities for repentance have not transferred generationally. And I, I just drove this point home to me. My repentance is not sufficient for my children and my grandchildren. Now, God may, they may have witnessed God's mercy in my life and it may lead them and they may, there may be a remnant of that and, and some, some reverence for God in, in, in view of what they saw happen in my life, but it doesn't extend to the generations. Every generation, because we are sinful men, has to be mindful of the righteousness of God and, and God's calling in that nation and that generation to be repenting. In fact, I thought this week that repentance really is an ongoing ministry. It is an ongoing reality in the life of the believer who has not yet been glorified. But this is, this is Nahum's last days. God has ended his extending mercy here and God has declared now that Nineveh shall be destroyed and it is graphic in the way it is described in their destruction. Jerusalem in some ways under Ahaz was already because of the power of Assyria paying tribute I understand to Assyria and so Syria Assyria comes down even stronger. And we know by the time of Hezekiah, Sennacherib comes and he mocks their God. In fact, he says of Israel, to whose, whose God of all the nations has been able to stop my conquest? You're no different, Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem was still standing at that time, but it was even subject to fall. So, so God is calling out now for destruction, Nineveh and Assyria. This morning, I just want to look at what Nahum lays as the foundation for the justice and the judgment of God, and namely, the very nature and character of God. It is not exhaustive. There are more attributes of God involved here, but he almost gives us the counterpart of Jonah. In Jonah, God is gracious and compassionate, long-suffering, and re willing to relent concerning calamity. Here... It just seems like it's the other side of that coin. God is not fooling around. He's not, he's not to be taken with, with some tri trivial attitude. He is a serious God and a God to be feared. And that is just as true as the fact that he's a gracious God. And those two things are not inconsistent in the person of God. So God calls upon Nahum to deliver this oracle or this vision. So I want to read through verses 1 through 15 of the first chapter, but I want to concentrate on this morning of what, what Nahum says that God is. Tonight we'll get to what he says about what God does, but I think it's important to root, to root what God does in who he is. In fact, I think that's part of the dispute in our generation and, and the difficulty in believing in a, in, a, in a wrathful God because we don't know who He is. We hear what He does and we say, how could He order Israel to slaughter a city? How could He do these things if He's the God of love and the God of mercy and grace? How could He do these things? Well, if you don't know who He is, you're never going to understand or even attempt to understand what He does. If we did what God does, we would be all those things we accuse God of being. But He is not us. He is unique in the universe. There is none like God. He is holy and set apart. And I think that's, that's where this is rooted at. And so that's what He allows for in this first chapter. So He begins the oracle of Nineveh, the book of vision, of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty or leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. 
He rebukes the sea and makes it dry and he dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of him and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence, the world and all the inhabitants in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken up by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Whatever you devise against the Lord, he will make a complete end of it. Distress will not rise up twice. Like tangled thorns and like those who are drunken with their drink, they are consumed as stubble, completely withered. From you has gone forth one who plotted evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and likewise many, even so they will be cut off and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, he's talking to Judah here, I will afflict you no longer. So now I will break his yoke bar from upon you and I will tear off his shackles, off your shackles. The Lord has issued a command concerning you, Nineveh. Your name will no longer be perpetuated. I will cut off idol and image from the house of your gods. I will prepare your grave for you are contemptible. And he closes this chapter. Behold, on the mountains of the feet, the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. Celebrate your feast, O Judah. Pay your vows, for never again will the wicked one pass through you. He is completely cut off. Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would help me this morning to, to handle rightly the word. Lord, we are so prone to get off balance. We want to we make you an all-merciful God, but not a just God. Or we want to make you an all-just God, but not a merciful God. So, Father, we are fallible creatures. I'm a fallible speaker, and the hearers are fallible as well. By your spirit and by your truth, would you bring to bear on us the very foundations of both mercy and justice and wrath and vengeance. We ask in Christ's name, amen. It's an interesting book in this sense as well. Mingled into this devastating prophecy against Nineveh is an encouragement for Judah. You heard a couple of verses that mentioned that as well. I will no longer afflict you. I have afflicted you. In fact, if you want to do some further reading, I encourage you to read Isaiah 10 where, where, where Isaiah is prophesying that God says he will use Assyria, use a nation, a wicked nation, as a, as a whip, as it were, against his own people who had drifted into ungodliness themselves. However, Assyria need not think that it will now therefore escape the righteous and judgment of God simply because he was utilizing them in that, in that mission of his sanctification of his own people. And he says in that chapter in Isaiah that God in fact will op open the door for judgment against the very nation that he used to judge his own people. So Assyria doesn't escape because God used them providentially to rebuke his own people. No more then those who crucified Christ will be delivered from their guilt because God had ordained that it should be so. God is absolutely righteous. I just want to share with you some of the things in, that Nahum mentioned here that he says that God is. In verse 2, he begins here by saying the Lord God is a jealous and avenging God is the Lord. Uh, let me just say, first of all, we're speaking of God here. We're speaking of the Lord. If these attributes were assigned to any of us, we would certainly be sinful. Certainly jealousy, but vengeance as well. In fact, the scriptures warn us, do not take vengeance for yourself. Why? Because you're not righteous. and You will pervert vengeance. You will miss the mark. So do not take it for yourself. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. And jealousy is the same way. 
I was reading some definitions of jealousy, and we would pervert this, and sometimes we have justification to be jealous along the same line that God is. But again, we're imperfect beings. God is infinitely holy. And so one of the root definitions in regards to jealousy was, was the idea that that which is rightfully belonging to me is taken or given to someone other than me. And in that sense, God is a jealous God. And I asked myself the question this week, well, what belongs to God? All things. All things. The heavens and the earth, every molecule in the universe is belonging to God. All things, therefore, are rightfully His possessions. To divert them to some use other than His design is, a, is to rob from God what is rightfully His. And He is a jealous God for that which is belonging to Him. If you don't get that, then you don't understand His judgment on Nineveh. And you don't even understand his judgment at the cross. You don't, you don't grasp that when you don't understand that all that exists is the proper possession of God Almighty who created it. And any misuse or misdirecting of all that belongs to God for a purpose other than the glory of God is itself infinitely justifiably condemning for sin for eternity. So God is a jealous God. He's jealous, he's jealous for his own people. He, they belong to him. He has chosen them out. And though he has in this instance used Assyria to rebuke his own people and to sanctify them, he is, they are still his people. But Assyria now had taken over and they were using and manipulating and exploiting what did not belong to them and they were dominating it by their own strength and own power. And so God is now coming to judge them. He began Gave them a moment to repent and they turned away from their wickedness. But now they are back to usurping that which belongs to God and taking possession of God's people. And God has come to render vengeance on behalf of his people. So, so the justice of God and the wrath and the vengeance of God is rooted in this reality that he is a jealous God and because all things belong to him and all things exist for his glory, anything being used or exploited to move away from that fulfillment of that purpose is a, is a robbery from God. It is, a, it is an adulterous thing to do, to take from God that which rightly belongs to him and even to use it for ourselves. I thought about the implications of that. And I thought about the potential wrath and justice due me if I use my body or exploit my body in a way that satisfies the lust of my flesh or the lust of someone else's flesh or in any other way other than what it has been created to be. And it made me tremble because I thought to myself, from my birth I have been subject to the wrath of God, the righteous wrath of God. Because from my infancy, I demanded my way. It's my body, it's my appetite, and you exist to fulfill it for me. You see how vulnerable we are then to sin against God and to usurping what belongs to God. And using it to satisfy or gratify a sinful flesh. So we are all ripe at every given moment for the justice of God to be poured out upon us. And the fact that it is not immediately and in full, nothing due to nothing but the mercy of God. Nothing but that. And so you don't have to be in Assyria you don't have to be an Adolf Hitler. You just have to be a sinner by nature who, who usurps the authority and the ownership of God and, and lives as though you are directing and the pilot of your ship in this world. And if you're that way, and if you're that way this morning, apart from Christ, you are ripe for the judgment of God and the fullness of that judgment and the display of wrath. Now, I know we don't come to church on Sunday morning to hear that stuff. But that's, if you don't understand the nature of God and the righteousness of God, you will never make any heads or tails of the wrath of God and the expression of that wrath or His vengeance. You will never understand those and be able to reconcile those with the love of God. Because I suggest to you this morning that the mercy of God and the righteous wrath of God have their origins in the same nature. It's not some two different things. It's... I'm, Hopefully I'll explain to you that in a moment. 
But God is a jealous God. Notice in Exodus 20, chapter 20, verses 4 and 5, but listen to this. In the command, you shall not make, pay special attention to this. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or the earth beneath or in the water beneath. You shall not worship them nor serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments did you notice there the basis for this for this command essentially he says you shall not take and assign to idols that which is properly mine worship that that's, what, that's, the, that's the sin of idolatry. People think, well, you made an idol, you're sin, therefore you're, you're, you're subject to the wrath of God. The reason you're subject that for, to God's judgment is because you have taken what is His rightfully, which is worship of the universe, and you have assigned it to something other than Him, something not deserving that worship. That's why you are subject to wrath and justice and the vengeance of God, because you have usurped, therefore, what was due him and do him alone so we get called up in the idea that making idols what's an idol what's this what's that what's that the principle underneath that is assigning devotion and adoration and worship to something that is not deserving of it and taking it away from the one who is infinitely deserving of it and whose right it is to receive it so you can call it a car, you can call it a house, you can call it a little wooden idol, you can call it a spouse, you can call it a child, you can call it any other thing. But if worship is directed somewhere other than to its rightful possessor, who is God, then it is the essence of sinfulness and rebellion. And it is worthy, worthy, that's an important phrase, worthy and has earned for itself judgment. See, that's what Nineveh didn't get in their repentance, apparently. Or the generations following. They thought their one time repentance was enough. God has relented. He's shown himself now to be a gracious and relenting God. Therefore we need not worry about holiness from this day forward. And the progression of that resulted in a worse evil than they were in the beginning. And now the, the justice of God that had been relented from now has come back to bear. And this time it is certain. Why? Because he is a jealous God. He is a jealous God. Not Please don't confuse the jealousy of God with the jealousy of men. There is a rightful place for jealousy. A husband who has entered into covenant with his wife, they are each other's possession. There is righteousness and jealousy. She belongs to them. And for her or him to be used or utilized by someone other than the one belonging to them is the essence of sinfulness against that covenant. And the husband and the wife in those cases should be jealous. That's a righteous indignation, a righteous jealousness. But so often jealousness in this world is jealousy over things which we have no right to. We look to a brother or a sister who has worked hard and has earned the possession of those things. And we're jealous because they have something that we think ought to be our right. So we resent them and hate them for it and we feel jealousy towards them. We have no right to those things. They worked and they earned those things. If we're not willing to work and earn the same things, then we have no right to those. We have no, we have no certificate of possessing those things. We want what belongs to another. And so we exercise jealousy so often in that way. God is not a man. God is not like us. We are not like God, other, especially in our sinfulness. We reflect the image of God. We are created in the image of God. But in our fallenness, our ideas of jealousy shouldn't be superimposed imposed upon God. And that's where so much misunderstanding comes from. God is a jealous God, but He is that because all that exists is rightfully His possession. And He has every right as the creator and possessor and sustainer of all these things to not only expect, but to demand its submissiveness and its usefulness to His ends. Glorify God with your body. You are bought, Christian, with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. Not only is God a jealous God, but he is an avenging God. In verse 2 he says that a jealous and avenging God is the Lord. Uh, I was reading a definition of avenging or vengeance is to, 
some simple definitions, definitions were seeking punishment for a wrong, or a, 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 an injury done to oneself. Uh, one of them said retribution for an injustice committed against another. Under God's providence, we have governments who do not bear the sword in vain. And they are, they are God's instrument and function for bringing retribution for injustice. We're not, God doesn't call us to be vigilantes. If we've done, been done an injustice in the New Testament context, we can forgive and love our enemies. But there is an instrument God has ordained for the retribution or the carrying out of justice when there's been an injustice. But God needs no tribunal. God needs no, God needs no court or supreme court. God is an avenging God. It is, he, he returns or gives retribution for injustices against the justice which is defined by His very nature. So He is a rightfully an avenging God. When we sin against God, when we exploit God's people, when we, when we sin, whether minor sin in our minds or major sin or catastrophic sins, we are essentially committing an injustice against the very nature and character of the God who called these things into existence. And as such, God will recompense or ret bring retribution ultimately in judgment, ultimately in the exercise of His wrath and taking vengeance in that system. There is no injustice. In fact, he says later on, God will by no means clear the guilty. I'll get into that tonight. He will no, by, by no means not hold the guilty responsible. By no means, by the way. God is a God of vengeance. He will not stand by though He waits and though He tarries and though He is long-suffering and gracious just as, just as uh, Jonah had prophesied of Him. Though He is all these things, He is not neglecting in regards to restoring justice or establishing justice in the world. My, one of my favorite passages in Romans 2, speaking of Christ, demonstrates there that God put Christ, Christ forward as a propitiation in His blood. Why? So that He might be just, declared or demonstrated as just. He didn't just wink at sin. It had a cost and there had to be a death. So Jesus is there as a testimony to the righteousness of God, but at the same thing in the same event as the mercy of God as well. He would be both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Him. So let me just say this this morning. If your understanding of God is that is that if you live a good life, he kind of winks and looks over those sins. Don't deceive yourself. Apart from Christ, that little sin that you think he winks at is, is worthy and deserving of an eternal condemnation. A never dying but always dying existence throughout eternity. Because in that little winked at sin, you have sinned against an infinitely holy, righteous God. That's what that's the God Nahum is portraying. Before he even gets into what God does, he's establishing you need to understand who he is. He's not the king of Assyria. He's not the king of Jerusalem. He's not the king of Judah, the northern kingdom, or the southern kingdom. He is not a king as you men are kings. And if you bring all to bear that you have, you have not even begun to scratch the surface of what He can bring to bear. This is God who is declaring now judgment upon Nineveh. That's why I said, this is, the, this is what Jonah wanted. This is exactly what he wanted. And he was angry because Nineveh didn't get this. And God goes out of His way to explain to Jonah and to us through the book of Jonah that God is a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and relenting in calamity. God is, that is one part of the nature of God that is the essence of who He is. But that does not discount or negate who He is when there is justice to be demanded in that moment. I was reading a commentator and I wholeheartedly agree that God doesn't exercise his attributes here or his character independent of one another. God doesn't have to cease to be loving to exercise justice or to, to display wrath or take vengeance. He doesn't have to go in and out of different attributes to act in certain ways. When God exercises his vengeance, his righteousness, his love, his grace, his compassion, all these things are intact and they are all influencing or influential in how God is acting in that moment. He is acting to take vengeance as it were for, for their sins in this case against his people and even against God. 
But I think ultimately speaking, God acts to take vengeance in regards to His own honor. In regards to His own glory. You have diminished in our sinfulness and in wickedness and in the exploitation of God's people down through the century. We have diminished or brought ourselves up against the very glory and honor of God. If God lets that go, then His honor is called into question and His glory is diminished. He must, He must be just. And if I could jump forward, that justice will satisfy itself in one of two places. At the cross, in Christ on your behalf, or apart from that, you are, you, are ex, you are accepting the fullness of that to come upon yourself in the judgment. It's the only two places that that's satisfied. God is an avenger's God. I love in the scripture in Isaiah where God says to them, I am God. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another. It's not for rent. It's not to be distributed. I am singularly God. And as such, worthy of a certain glory or possessing of a certain glory. I do not give it away. It is mine. It is my possession. And when sinful men tarnish or try to diminish or minimize or conceal my glory, they are ripe for justice because my glory must be manifest. I'm not giving it away. I'm not standing by as the injustice of quenching it happens, whether it's in Israel or whether it's in Syria or whether it's in the United States of America in 2023. Do you ever think about this? Sometimes... I dwell on this and I really do shudder inside because I think of this nature of God, this just righteous God whose long suffering endures the babies killed in the womb today and the perversions and the distortions made all over the world, the corruption, the lying, the self-exaltation, the pride, the celebrating, the most ruthless and corrupt practices that could even be conceived of, all the while underneath the view of this infinitely righteous God. How this world, not just the U.S., but this globe, isn't immediately incinerated in that instance is a mystery to me, grounded only in the cross of Christ. Were it not for that, that would be the destiny and there'd be no use to delay it. Finish it up now. Because there would be no hope that there could be any reconciliation or redemption in the midst of such wickedness. That's what they were deserving of. And so it is with sinful men. Part of that avenging as well as the wrath of God. In verse 2 you see that. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. He's jealous and avenging. But then he's avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and receives, reserves wrath for his enemies. I think of Romans chapter 2 there where it talks about them rejecting the, or not realizing the kindness of God that leads them to repentance. But in rejecting that, they are by their own sinful and rejection of that storing up. In other words, wrath is building up. It's, there's a dam holding it back. It's not being unleashed on you, but the more you reject the kindness of God, the more you resist the kindness of God, prompting you by providence and everything around you by the witness of the heavens itself from repenting and turning away from that, you are building the dam higher and the wrath of God is building up. It is not dissipating, by the way. You get that? You're storing it up. From the first sin of your life, apart from Christ, it has been building. God didn't say, well, I waited till they got 13, or I waited till they got 25, I waited till they got really bad, and then I started getting mad. No, every single sin was deserving of the just recompense of God, and His wrath was building. And all your life, you've been building the dam higher, thinking that God was winking at that sin. No, 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 no. The wrath was building, and it was building. And for some, it may be over ten times over your head already. That's just the preaching of John, uh, Jonathan Edwards when a sinner's in the hands of an angry God. It is building. It is not dissipating through time. It is not the same today as it was yesterday if you're apart from Christ. It is amounting. It is amassing now. 
And someday you will have reached the end of God's mercy and His grace and His long-suffering and the dam will be released and the fullness of the wrath of God will be poured out upon you and it will never be quenched because your suffering will never, never satisfy the infringements you've committed against the holy character of God Almighty. God is a wrathful God. And that's serious. I've always told people that... Um, if you don't believe he's wrathful, take a look at the cross. Just take a real good look at the cross. I mean, you see there, that's what propitiation means. God set him, his son, forth as a propitiation, as a wrath absorber. And he did that so that the world would understand that no, he didn't wink at those little sins that you thought were minor. They had a price. He didn't wink at them at all. In fact, they were building up not only for you, but for humanity, for all mankind. And they were all building up. And the dam of that sin broke forth upon Christ who submitted himself as the absorber of the wrath of God due to those who were deserving of it. That's the wrath of God poured out on Christ on your behalf. If you're a believer, if you're outside of Christ, it's still awaiting you. It's still there. It wasn't expiated in Christ on your behalf because you've rejected Him and that is the only fountain of the mercy. You reject Him and there is no other alternative but for you to absorb the fullness of the wrath of God. Let me just say this. I hope no one here this morning is subject to that wrath at this moment. But let me ask you if you are. Can you endure that? He says later on, who can stand against his indignation? You can't even stand against the king of Assyria's indignation. Will you stand against the indignation of one who has all power? That's Jonah's, or this is Nahum's God. In fact, Romans 1.18 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. And against all those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And he goes on to say, oh, there's a witness. Look around. He's made it evident, his divinity and his Godhead. It's evident if you open your eyes and look around, but you can't see it because you're blind, which is your, an indictment of how wicked you are. Therefore, in this suppression of truth and in this ungodliness, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And he goes on to talk about the incremental display of that wrath in the perversion of their own lust. They started desiring one another, men desiring men and women, women. So homosexuality was a manifestation of this wrath of God. That is not, by the way, the fullness of that wrath. That's yet to come for those who have rejected Christ. So God is wrathful. In verse 3, it seems almost out of place, but he says here, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. This is not just a temper tantrum from a sovereign, almighty God. This is a determined vengeance and pouring out of His wrath. He's not suddenly provoked to anger. It may pour out on us in a burst of, in a flood. It may crumble like the mountains. He may, he may pour it out instantly in a moment. But he has not been slow to get to that place. He has been slow to get to that level of anger. He is not just temper tantrum and hot-headed like we would be. I can get really angry sometimes in a moment. But this is a contemplated, determined manifestation of the righteous character of God in wrath. He's slow to anger. Oh yes, he's slow. Thank God he is, aren't you? He's slow to anger, but don't let that deceive you into meaning he is negligent to, to anger. He's not, he's not complacent in regards to stirring up his anger. When his honor is at stake and his glory is diminished, he may be long-suffering and he may be contemplating and deliberating a day when that wrath would finally be unfolded. He was long-suffering and he was slow to anger towards Nineveh, 150 years in fact. But now that day is over. Now his anger is about to be poured out and manifested. So, 
So we should not deceive ourselves into thinking because God hasn't poured his wrath and anger out into our lives in this moment that it is not being stored up in this moment in our rebellion against God. He may, let, he may go another 20 years before it finally is, but at the end of that rejection of the very source of your mercy, there is nothing left but wrath and vengeance and justice. He is slow to anger, but he is not remiss in stirring himself up against sins, against his very character. This is God. Verse 3 says there as well, the Lord is slow to anger, but the accompaniment there is great in power. Great in power, certainly in the sense that he can, he's not subject to emotional whims and outbursts. He is great in power in governing his, his deliberation in regards to the sins of sinful men. But he's also great in power when it comes out to the manifestation of his justice in this sense. He goes on here to say, the clouds are the dust of his feet as he makes his way. We were coming home from Jessica Nims last night and we were trying to race ahead of a front coming from the north, north, northwest to the southeast. And all along the way I could look and you could see those clouds boiling. And on one side was just pretty, pretty light sky and then there was this dark, billowing, ominous looking cloud. And it literally looked like it was grabbing for the white sky, the lighter sky. And it was rolling and we were paralleling it all the way home. And I thought to myself about this text and I thought, that's just, that's just the dust of God making His way in the universe. Those things were massive. We couldn't outrun it. When we left Jessica, it was there, and we ran 60 mile an hour all the way home and still couldn't outrun it. It kept not only moving, but it was expanding as it moved. The dust of His feet as He makes His way. He goes on to talk about the power of this God, and that is certainly something to be taken into consideration when we think about the manifestation of this wrath once he has released it into the world in judgment against sin. We're not dealing with a weak God. He is great in power. It's interesting as well in this passage. He goes on in verse 7 from this. I'll come back to verses 3 through 6 tonight, but in verse 7, Nehemiah says, God says to Nehemiah, the Lord is good. See, this is, this is really striking to me because all he's described in the world would hear that and say, they would not associate good with this manifestation. The Lord is vengeful. The Lord is jealous. The Lord is angry and wrathful. And you'd say, isn't that good? The world said, no, that's not good. This has to do with the character of God. This vengeance, this wrath, this, this jealousy originates in the goodness and the, of the nature of God Himself. It is part and parcel of who He is. It is not originating out of some demagogue or some wicked, evil power in the heavens. He is good in His essence. It is who He is. It is out of this that that flows. In fact, I would suggest to you, if it doesn't flow in, in avenging His own honor and His glory, then, it, then He ceases to be good in that sense. He becomes just like us. He only acts to defend when He thinks it's in His best interest. God is compelled to enact justness or to carry out justice for sin against His holy nature. Otherwise, He is not good. If He winks at it and lets it go, then He's endured an injustice against His very nature, which is infinitely holy, and therefore it would render Him not good. Not good in the purest sense. He says, accompanying that as well, and I think he's speaking here to Judah, particularly in verse 7, kind of a parenthetical thing. After having described the nature of this God who's going to bring the wrath, as it were, against Nineveh, he's encouraging the Jews here who were under the oppression of this wicked, powerful enemy. And he says to them, I think, in essence, the Lord is good. Says later on in verse, in verse 12, though I have afflicted you. So this affliction they have been enduring is under the sovereign hand of God Almighty, a good God who, who is using now a wicked nation to sanctify his people to their good and for his glory. So he says the Lord is good and he's a stronghold in the day of trouble. 
And he knows that phrase there speaks there of intimately knows. He knows intimately those who have taken refuge in him. That's an encouraging word to Judah. Yes, you are under suffering. And yes, I have in my wisdom, eternal wisdom, utilized the wickedness of a wicked nation to bring, bring the lash, as it were, bring the rod upon your backs to correct you and bring you back into fellowship with me. But, but this relationship makes me a stronghold for you. Yes, I am good to you, Judah. Yes, you have suffered, Judah. But it is for a, to a good end and to my glory. You are my people. And you are being abused beyond the point to which I am using it. Now retribution is coming upon the heads of your abusers, Assyria. So we'll get in tonight to what God does on the basis of that. But I wanted to dwell on that a little bit. That's not an exhaustive list of the characteristics of God. I think it is Nahum through God's word here. Nahum bringing to bear the attributes and the nature of God who was underneath what he's about to describe that is coming upon Nineveh. And can anybody say that Nineveh wasn't worthy of that? Nineveh didn't deserve it that bad. And can you say this morning that apart from Christ, you don't deserve it that bad? It's a holy God. To me, this is so critical because if you don't get this, you don't, you don't get the cross. You may not be coming back tonight, but I do want you to understand. And I shared this with the kids this morning, but one of the things that's always struck me is that when I read in Genesis the command given in the garden and the comment, in the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. And when I read all the way at the other end of the Bible, when Paul says the wages of sin is death, I never saw that erased anywhere. That is a demand of a holy and righteous God. Any sin, whether it's taking of the forbidden tree in the garden or the manifestation of sin in the human nature... You can abide by the law. You can morally guide your life. But there is a sincere, desperate problem you have. And that is you have a nature of sin. And the only recompense for that is death. Our issue is not that Jesus' death keeps us from dying. Jesus' death facilitates our dying. And therefore our resurrection. And this is what I think so many Christians, I believe, are missing when you look to the cross, yes, Jesus dies substitutionary death in a very specific way. But there is a two ordinance in the church that indicate that there is somehow in the, in the mysteries of the triune God and our union with Christ, He draws us and joins us with Christ. And there with Christ, our sins are with Christ. And Christ dies and takes us down into the grave. And there, because of His sinlessness and His perfection, He is able to pay the wages of that sin, which is the death which endures the fullness of the wrath of God due for that sin and having satisfied that debt he is released therefore nothing can hold him because the debt's been paid and he rises from the dead and who's with him those whom he has taken to himself so in a very real way Jesus facilitates you dying and the fulfillment of God's sentence upon sin in your life and because of his righteousness you are also raised to new life I've always said our problem is we got to die yet we want to live. And there's only one avenue for that to happen, and that's in Christ. That's the cross. That's the exact fountain of the, of the mercy that was extended to Nineveh the first time under the preaching of Jonah. And I think the, the mercy that Jonah himself seemed to not understand because he was resentful about it. But now there's the opposite side of that. If you reject that fountain, there is only one thing left for you, Nineveh, and I'm about to describe it. And let me say this morning, sinner that is apart from Christ, if you reject that fountain of the mercy of God there's only one thing left for you and it's exactly what he's about to describe that's it there's nothing left for you but that this is why do you understand this is why we treasure the gospel this is, this is the heart of the gospel 
It is the only deliverance from that certain condemnation and the certainty of that judgment to fall upon you eternally. You will never live good enough or moral enough to erase this problem you have, which is the very nature of sin, which itself must die. I am crucified with Christ, Paul say. Yet not I live, but Christ lives within me. I am a new creation in Christ Jesus. If you are not, you are yet remaining and yet waiting for the damn holding back the wrath of God to be broken in upon your life. And it terrifies me to think of how close I walked to the fullness of that wrath every day of my lost life. You ever do that? You look back on your life and you think about the sins you've committed. Some of us have been heinous sins. Others have been those little minor sins. But do you realize you walked a razor's edge there? At any moment, by the providential hand of God Almighty, the end of your days could have come to an end and you would be at that moment facing the fullness of God's wrath due for every sin you ever committed, every one of them worthy of an eternity of condemnation and suffering and outer darkness and gnashing of teeth. You walk that razor's edge. My goodness, if you are a believer today, ought you not to rejoice in the cross? I mean, didn't Paul not say, I came to you determined to know nothing but Christ and Him crucified? Because that's central to everything else he was promising and preaching. And if you have not that Christ, you have nothing. You have nothing but despair and hopelessness and suffering ahead. So this morning's message, not intended this way, becomes an evangelistic appeal. If you hear the Spirit and you hear the gospel of Christ receiving this morning. If you reject him this day, you walk out on that razor's edge. You don't know what the next moment will bring. Will you even make it home before you enter into that realm to where that'll be the, that'll be the balance? Will Christ have endured all the wrath of God due you? Or will you have rejected the very fountain of your mercy and say to an infinitely holy and powerful God, I will receive to myself what is due me. Stand up on your own two feet, man. Be strong as you will. You will not bear that. You will not bear that. Stand with me. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I thank you for the fear that it can strike even into the heart of the believer when we realize, even as those who are recipients of that mercy, how easily we think lightly of that almost treaded underfoot thinking that somehow because we did our devotion today and because we helped that stranger that somehow that warrants salvation. Lord, it's true that those things may be fruits of the Spirit's dwelling in us, but they didn't warrant it. Nothing could have warranted it but Christ's suffering on our behalf. So, Father, I pray that as we leave this place today that there are not a single soul who walks out of this place having rejected this great mercy wherewith we are saved. Have your way in these moments of invitation. Speak to hearts. Enable them to respond, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.